When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Chapter 4 of The 39 Steps by John Buchan this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Thirty-Nine Steps by John Buchan Read by Adrian Pretzelis Chapter 4 The Adventure of the Radical Candidate You may picture me driving that forty-horsepower car for all she was worth— over the crisp moor roads on that shining May morning, glancing back at first over my shoulder, and looking anxiously to the next turning, then driving with a vague eye, just wide enough awake to keep on the highway, for I was thinking desperately of what I had found in Scudder's pocket-book. The little man had told me a pack of lies. All his yarns about the Balkans and the Jew anarchists, and the Foreign Office Conference were eyewash, and so was Carolides, and yet not quite, as you shall hear. I had staked everything on my belief in his story, and had been let down. Here was his book telling me a different tale, and instead of being once bitten twice shy, I believed it absolutely. Why? I don't know. It rang desperately true and the first yarn, if you understand me, had been in a queer way true also in spirit. The fifteenth day of June was going to be a day of destiny, a bigger destiny than the killing of a dago. It was so big that I didn't blame Scudder for keeping me out of the game, and wanting to play a lone hand. That, I was pretty clear, was his intention. He had told me something which sounded big enough— but the real thing was so immortally big that he, the man who had found it out, wanted it all for himself. I didn't blame him. It was risks, after all, that he was chiefly greedy about. The whole story was in the notes, with gaps, you understand, which he would have filled up from his memory. He stuck down his authorities, too, and had an odd trick of giving them all a numerical value 
and then striking a balance which stood for the reliability of each stage in the yarn. The three names he had printed were authorities, and there was a man, Ducrosny, who got five out of a possible five, and another fellow, Amersfort, who got three. The bare bones of the tale were all that was in the book, that and one queer phrase which occurred half a dozen times inside brackets. Thirty-nine steps was the phrase, and at its last time of use it ran thirty-nine steps. I counted them. High tide, 10.17 p.m. I could make nothing of that. The first thing I learned was that it was no question of preventing a war. That was coming as sure as Christmas, had been arranged, said Scudder, ever since February 1912. Carolides was going to be the occasion. He was booked all right, and was to hand in his cheques on June 14th, two weeks and four days from that May morning. I gathered from Scudder's notes that nothing on earth could prevent that. His talk of Epiroti guards that would skin their own grandmother was all bilio. The second thing was that this war was going to come as a mighty surprise to Britain. Carolides' death would set the Balkans by the ears, and then Vienna would chip in with an ultimatum. Russia wouldn't like that, and there would be high words. But Berlin would play the peacemaker and pour oil on the waters, till suddenly she would find a good cause for a quarrel, pick it up, and in five hours let fly at us. That was the idea, and a pretty good one, too. Honey and fair speeches, and then a stroke in the dark. While we were talking about the good will and good intentions of Germany, our coast would be silently ringed with mines, and submarines would be waiting for every battleship. But all this depended upon the third thing which was due to happen on June 15th. I would never have grasped this if I hadn't once happened to meet a French staff officer coming back from West Africa who had told me a lot of things. One was that, in spite of all the nonsense talked in Parliament, there was a real working alliance between France and Britain, and that the two general staffs met every now and then, and made plans for joint action in time of war. Well, in June a very great swell was coming over from Paris, and he was going to get nothing less than a statement of the disposition of the British home fleet on mobilization. At least, I gathered it was something like that, anyhow it was something uncommonly important. But on the fifteenth day of June there were to be others in London, others at whom I could only guess. Scudder was content to call them collectively the Black Stone. They represented not our allies but our deadly foes, and the information destined for France was to be diverted to their pockets and it was to be used, remember, used a week or two later, with great guns and swift torpedoes, suddenly in the darkness of a summer night. This was the story I had been deciphering in the back room of a country inn, overlooking a cabbage garden. This was the story that hummed in my brain as I swung in the big touring car from glen to glen. 
My first impulse had been to write a letter to the Prime Minister, but a little reflection convinced me that that would be useless. Who would believe my tale? I must show a sign, some token in proof, and heaven knew what that could be. Above all, I must keep going myself, ready to act when things got riper, and that was going to be no light job with the police of the British Isles in full cry after me, and the watchers of the Black Stone running silently and swiftly on my trail. I had no very clear purpose in my journey, but I steered east by the sun, for I remembered from the map that if I went north I would come into a region of coal-pits and industrial towns. Presently I was down from the moorlands and traversing the broad haw of a river. For miles I ran alongside a park wall, and in a break of the trees I saw a great castle. I swung through the little old thatched villages, and over peaceful lowland streams, and past gardens blazing with hawthorn and yellow laburnum. The land was so deep in peace that I could scarcely believe that somewhere behind me were those who sought my life. Ay, and that in a month's time, unless I had the almightiest of luck, these round country faces would be pinched and staring, and men would be lying dead in English fields. About midday I entered a long straggling village, and had a mind to stop and eat. Halfway down was the post-office, and on the steps of it stood the postmistress and a policeman hard at work conning a telegram. When they saw me they wakened up, and the policeman advanced with a raised hand and cried on me to stop. I nearly was fool enough to obey. Then it flashed upon me that the wire had to do with me, that my friends at the inn had come to an understanding, and were united in desiring to see more of me, and that it had been easy enough for them to wire the description of me and the car to thirty villages through which I might pass. I released the brakes just in time. As it was, the policeman made a claw at the hood, and only dropped off when he got my left in his eye. I saw that main roads were no place for me, and turned into the byways. It wasn't an easy job without a map, for there was the risk of getting into a farmyard and ending in a duck-pond or a stable-yard, and I couldn't afford that kind of delay. I began to see what an ass I had been to steal the car. The big green brute would be the safest kind of clue to me over the breadth of Scotland. If I left it and took to my feet, it would be discovered in an hour or two, and I would get no start in the race. The immediate thing to do was to get to the loneliest roads. These I soon found when I struck up a tributary of the big river, and got into a glen which climbed over a pass. Here I met nobody, but it was taking me too far north, so I slewed east along a bad track, and finally struck a big double-line railway. Away below me I saw another broadish valley, and it occurred to me that if I crossed it I might find some remote hostelry to pass the night. The evening was now drawing in, and I was furiously hungry, for I had eaten nothing since breakfast except a couple of buns I had brought from a baker's cart. Just then I heard a noise in the sky, and lo and behold there was that infernal aeroplane 
flying low, about a dozen miles to the south, and rapidly coming towards me. I had the sense to remember that, on a bare moor, I was at the aeroplane's mercy, and that my only chance was to get to the leafy cover of the valley. Down the hill I went like blue lightning, screwing my head round whenever I dared to watch that damned flying machine. Soon I was on a road between hedges, and dipping to the deep-cut glen of a stream. Then came a bit of thick wood, where I slackened speed. Suddenly on my left I heard the hoot of another car, and realised to my horror that I was almost upon a couple of gate-posts, through which a private road debouched on to the highway. My horn gave an agonised roar, but it was too late. I clapped on my brakes, but my impetus was too great, and there before me a car was sliding athwart my course. In a second there would have been a deuce of a wreck. I did the only thing possible, and ran slap into the hedge on the right, trusting to find something soft beyond. But there I was mistaken. My car slithered through the hedge like butter, then gave a sickening plunge forward. I saw what was coming leapt on the seat, and would have jumped out, but a branch of hawthorn got me in the chest, lifted me up and held me, while a ton or two of expensive metal slipped below me, bucked and pitched, and then dropped with an almighty smash fifty feet to the bed of the stream. Slowly that thorn let me go. I subsided first on the hedge, and then very gently on a bower of nettles. As I scrambled to my feet, a hand took me by the arm, and a sympathetic and badly scared voice asked me if I were hurt. I found myself looking at a tall young man in goggles and a yellow ulster who kept on blessing his soul and whinnying apologies. For myself, once I got my wind back, I was rather glad than otherwise. This was one way of getting rid of the car. "'My blame, sir,' I answered him. It's lucky that I did not add homicide to my follies. That's the end of my Scotch motor tour, but it might have been the end of my life." He plucked out a watch and studied it. "'You're the right sort of fellow,' he said. "'I can spare a quarter of an hour, and my house is two minutes off. I'll see you clothed and fed and snug in bed. Where's your kit, by the way? Is it in the burn along with the car?' "'It's in my pocket.' I said, brandishing a toothbrush. I'm a colonial and travel light. A colonial? he cried. By gad, you're the very man I've been praying for. Are you by any chance a free trader? I am, said I, without the foggiest notion of what he meant. He patted my shoulder and hurried me into his car. Three minutes later we drew up before a comfortable-looking shooting-box set among pine-trees and he ushered me indoors. He took me first to a bedroom, and flung half a dozen of his suits before me, for my own had been pretty well reduced to rags. I selected a loose blue serge, which differed most conspicuously from my own garments, and borrowed a linen collar. Then he hailed me to the dining-room, where the remnants of a meal stood on the table, and announced that I had just five minutes to feed. You can take a snack in your pocket, and we'll have supper when we get back. I've got to be at the Masonic Hall at eight o'clock, or my agent will comb my hair." 
I had a cup of coffee and some cold ham while he yarned away on the hearth-rug. "'You find me in the deuce of a mess, Mr. Uh... By the by, you haven't told me your name. Twiston? Any relation to old Tommy Twisden of the Sixtieth? No? Well, you see, I am liberal candidate for this part of the world, and I had a meeting on to-night at Brattleburn. That's my chief town, and an infernal Tory stronghold. I had got the colonial ex-premier fellow, Crumpleton, coming to speak for me to-night, and had the thing tremendously billed, and the whole place ground-baited. This afternoon I got a wire from the ruffian, saying he has got influenza at Blackpool, and here I am, left to do the whole thing myself. I had meant to speak for ten minutes, and must now go on for forty, and though I have been racking my brains for three hours to think of something, I simply cannot last the course. Now you've got to be a good chap and help me. You're a free trader, and can tell our people what a wash-out protection is in the colonies. All you fellows have the gift of the gab. I wish to heaven I had it. I'll be for ever more in your debt." I had very few notions about free trade, one way or the other, but I saw no other chance to get what I wanted. My young gentleman was far too absorbed in his own difficulties to think how odd it was to ask a stranger who had just missed death by an ace, and who had lost a one-thousand-guinea car, to address a meeting for him on the spur of the moment. But my necessities did not allow me to contemplate oddness, or to pick and choose my supports. "'All right,' I said. "'I'm not much good as a speaker, but I'll tell them a bit about Australia.' At my words the cares of the ages slipped from his shoulders, and he was rapturous in his thanks. He lent me a big driving-coat, and never troubled to ask why I had started on a motor-tour without possessing an ulster, and, as we slipped down the dusty roads, poured into my ears the simple facts of his history. He was an orphan, and his uncle had brought him up. I have forgotten the uncle's name, but he was in the cabinet, and you can read his speeches in the papers. He had gone round the world after leaving Cambridge, and then, being short of a job, his uncle had advised politics. I gathered that he had no preference in parties. "'Good chaps in both,' he said cheerfully, "'and plenty of blighters, too. I'm a liberal, because my family have always been Whigs. But if he was lukewarm politically, he had strong views on other things.' He found out that I knew a bit about horses, and jawed away about the Derby entries, and he was full of plans for improving his shooting. Altogether a very clean, decent, callow young man. As we passed through a little town, two policemen signalled to us to stop, and flashed their lanterns on us. "'Beg pardon, Sir Harry. I've got instructions to look out for a car, and the description's not unlike yours.' Right ho said my host, when I thanked Providence for the devious ways I had been brought to safety. After that we spoke no more, for my host's mind began to labour heavily with his coming speech. His lips kept muttering, his eyes wandered, and I began to prepare myself for a second catastrophe. I tried to think of something to say myself, but my mind was dry as a stone. The next thing I knew we had drawn up outside a door in a street, and were being welcomed by some noisy gentlemen with rosettes. 
The hall had about five hundred in it, women mostly, a lot of bald heads, and a dozen or two young men. The chairman, a weaselly minister with a reddish nose, lamented Crumpleton's absence, soliloquized on his influenza, and gave me a certificate as a trusted leader of Australian thought. There were two policemen at the door, and I hoped they took note of that testimonial. Then Sir Harry started. I've never heard anything like it. He didn't begin to know how to talk. He had about a bushel of notes from which he read, and when he let go of them he fell into one prolonged stutter. Every now and then he remembered a phrase he had learned by heart, straightened his back, and gave it off like Harry Irving, and the next moment he was bent double and crooning over his papers. It was the most appalling rot, too. He talked about the German menace, and said it was all a Tory invention to cheat the poor of their rights and keep back the great flood of social reform, but that organized labor realized this and laughed the Tories to scorn. He was all for reducing our navy as a proof of our good faith, and then sending Germany an ultimatum, telling her to do the same, or we would knock her into a cocked hat. He said that, but for the Tories, Germany and Britain would be fellow-workers in peace and reform. I thought of the little black book in my pocket. A giddy lot Scudder's friends cared for peace and reform. Yet, in a queer way, I liked the speech. You could see the niceness of the chap shining out behind the muck with which he had been spoon-fed. Also, it took a load off my mind. I mightn't be much of an orator, but I was a thousand percent better than Sir Harry. I didn't get on so badly when it came to my turn. I simply told them all I could remember about Australia, praying there should be no Australian there, all about its Labour Party and immigration and universal service. I doubt if I remembered to mention free trade, but I said there were no Tories in Australia, only Labour and Liberals. That fetched a cheer and I woke them up a bit when I started in to tell them the kind of glorious business I thought could be made out of the Empire if we really put our backs into it. Although I fancy I was rather a success, the Minister didn't like me, though, and when he proposed a vote of thanks spoke of Sir Harry's speech as statesmanlike, and mine as having the eloquence of an immigration agent. When we were in the car again, my host was in wild spirits, having got his job over. "'A ripping speech, Twisden,' he said. "'Now you're coming home with me. I'm all alone, and if you'll stop a day or two I'll show you some very decent fishing.' We had a hot supper, and I wanted it pretty badly, and then drank grog in a big cheery smoking-room with a crackling wood fire. I thought the time had come for me to put my cards on the table. I saw by this man's eye that he was the kind you can trust. "'Listen, Sir Harry,' I said, "'I've got something pretty important to say to you. You're a good fellow, and I'm going to be frank. Where on earth did you get that poisonous rubbish you talked last night?' His face fell. "'Was it as bad as that?' he asked ruefully. "'It did sound rather thin.' I got most of it out of the progressive magazine and pamphlets that agent chap of mine keeps sending me. But surely you don't think Germany would ever go to war with us?" "'Ask that question in six weeks, and it won't need an answer,' I said. 
But if you'll give me your attention for half an hour, I'm going to tell you a story. I can see yet that bright room with the deer's heads and the old prints on the walls, Sir Harry standing restlessly on the stone curb of the hearth, and myself lying back in an armchair, speaking. I seem to be another person, standing aside and listening to my own voice, and judging carefully the reliability of my tale. It was the first time I had ever told anyone the exact truth, so far as I understood it, and it did me no end of good, for it straightened out the thing in my own mind. I blinked no detail. He heard all about Scudder, and the milkman, and the notebook, and my doings in Galloway. Presently he got very excited, and walked up and down the hearthrug. "'So you see,' I concluded, "'you have got here in your house the man that is wanted for the Portland Place murder. Your duty is to send your car for the police, and give me up. I don't think I'll get very far. There'll be an accident, and I'll have a knife in my ribs in an hour or two after arrest. Nevertheless, it's your duty as a law-abiding citizen. Perhaps in a month's time you'll be sorry, but you'll have no cause to think of that.' He was looking at me with bright, steady eyes. "'What was your job in Rhodesia, Mr. Hanney?' he asked. "'Mining engineer,' I said. "'I made my pile cleanly, and I have had a good time in the making of it. "'Not a profession that weakens the nerves, is it?' I laughed. "'Oh, as to that, my nerves are good enough.' I took down a hunting-knife from a stand on the wall and did the old Mashona trick of tossing it and catching it in my lips. That wants a pretty steady heart." He watched me with a smile. "'I don't want proofs. I may be an ass on a platform, but I can size up a man. You're no murderer, and you're no fool, and I believe you are speaking the truth. I'm going to back you up. Now, what can I do?' First, I want you to write a letter to your uncle.' I've got to get in touch with the government people some time before the 15th of June." He pulled his moustache. "'That won't help you. This is foreign office business, and my uncle would have nothing to do with it. Besides, you'll never convince him. No, I'll go one better. I'll write to the permanent secretary at the foreign office. He's my godfather, and one of the best going. What do you want?' He sat down at the table and wrote to my dictation. The gist of it was that if a man called Twisden—I thought I'd better stick to that name—turned up before June 15th, he was to treat him kindly. He said Twisden would prove his bona fides by passing the word Blackstone and whistling Annie Laurie. "'Good,' said Sir Harry. "'That's the proper style. By the way, you'll find my godfather—' His name's Sir Walter Bullivant, down at his country cottage for Whitsuntide. It's close to Artinswell on the Kennet. That's done. Now, what's the next thing? You're about my height. Lend me the oldest tweed suit you've got. Anything will do, so long as the colour is the opposite of the clothes I destroyed this afternoon. Then show me a map of the neighbourhood, and explain to me the lie of the land. Lastly, if the police come asking about me, just show them the car in the glen. If the other lot turn up, tell them I caught the South Express after your meeting." He did, or promised to do, 
all these things. I shaved off the remnants of my moustache, and got inside an ancient suit of what I believe is called heather mixture. The map gave me some notion of my whereabouts, and told me the two things I wanted to know, where the main railway to the south could be joined, and what were the wildest districts near at hand. At two o'clock he wakened me from my slumbered in the smoking-room armchair, and led me blinking into the dark starry night. An old bicycle was found in a tool-shed, and handed over to me. First turn to the right up by the long fir-wood, he enjoined. By daybreak you'll be well into the hills. Then I should pitch the machine into a bog, and take to the moors on foot. You can put in a week among the shepherds, and be as safe as you were in New Guinea. I pedalled diligently up steep roads of hill-gravel, till the skies grew pale with morning. As the mists cleared before the sun, I found myself in a wide green world of glens falling on every side, and a far-away blue horizon. Here, at any rate, I could get early news of my enemies. End of chapter 4《Chapter Five of the Thirty-Nine Steps by John Buchan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Thirty-Nine Steps by John Buchan. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Five The Adventure of the Spectacled Roadman. I sat down on the very crest of the pass, and took stock of my position. Behind me was the road, climbing through a long cleft in the hills which was the upper glen of some notable river. In front was a flat space of maybe a mile, all pitted with bog-holes and rough with tussocks, and then beyond it the road fell steeply down another glen to a plain whose blue dimness melted into the distance. To left and right were round-shouldered green hills, as smooth as pancakes, but to the south, that is, the left hand, there was a glimpse of high heathery mountains which I remembered from the map as the big knot of hill which I had chosen for my sanctuary. I was on the central boss of a huge upland country, and could see everything moving for miles. In the meadow below the road, half a mile back, a cottage smoked, but it was the only sign of human life. Otherwise there was only the calling of plovers, and the tinkling of little streams. It was now about seven o'clock, and as I waited I heard once again the ominous beat in the air. Then I realised that my vantage-ground might in reality be a trap. There was no cover for a tomtit in those bald green places. I sat quite still and hopeless, while the beat grew louder. Then I saw an aeroplane coming up from the east. It was flying high, but as I looked it dropped several hundred feet and began to circle round the knot of hill in narrowing circles, just as a hawk wheels before it pounces. Now it was flying very low, and now the observer on board caught sight of me. I could see one of the two occupants examining me through glasses. Suddenly it began to rise in swift whirls, 
and the next I knew it was speeding eastward again till it became a speck in the blue morning. That made me do some savage thinking. My enemies had located me, and the next thing would be a cordon around me. I didn't know what force they could command, but I was certain it would be sufficient. The aeroplane had seen my bicycle, and would conclude that I would try to escape by the road. In that case there might be a chance on the moors to the right or left. I wheeled the machine a hundred yards from the highway, and plunged it into a moss-hole, where it sank among pond-weed and water-buttercups. Then I climbed to a knoll which gave me a view of the two valleys. Nothing was stirring on the long white ribbon that threaded them. I have said there was not cover in the whole place to hide a rat. As the day advanced it was flooded with soft fresh light, till it had the fragrant sunniness of the South African veldt. At other times I should have liked the place, but now it seemed to suffocate me. The free moorlands were prison walls, and the keen hill air was the breath of a dungeon. I tossed a coin. Heads right, tails left. And it fell heads. So I turned to the north. In a little I came to the brow of the ridge which was the containing wall of the pass. I saw the high road for maybe ten miles, and far down it something that was moving and that I took to be a motor-car. Beyond the ridge I looked on a rolling green moor which fell away into wooded glens. Now my life on the veldt has given me the eyes of a kite, and I can see things for which most men need a telescope. Away down the slope, a couple of miles away, several men were advancing like a row of beaters at a chute. I dropped out of sight behind the skyline. That way was shut to me, and I must try the bigger hills to the south beyond the highway. The car, I had noticed, was getting nearer, but it was still a long way off, with some very steep gradients before it. I ran hard, crouching low except in the hollows, and as I ran I kept scanning the brow of the hill before me. Was it imagination, or did I see figures—one, two, perhaps more? moving in a glen beyond the stream. If you are hemmed in on all sides in a patch of land there is only one chance of escape. You must stay in the patch, and let your enemies search it and not find you. That was good sense. But how on earth was I to escape notice on that tablecloth of a place? I would have buried myself to the neck in mud, or lain below water, or climbed the tallest tree. But there was not a stick of wood. These bog-holes were little puddles. The stream was a slender trickle. There was nothing but short heather and bare hill bent and the white highway. Then in a tiny bright of road, beside a heap of stones, I found the roadman. He had just arrived and was wearily flinging down his hammer. He looked at me with a fishy eye and yawned. Confound the day I ever left the herdin," he said, as if to the world at large. There I was my ain maister. Now I'm a slave to the government, tethered to the roadside with serene and black like a suckle. He took up the hammer, struck a stone, dropped the implement with an oath, and put both hands to his ears. 
"'Mercy on me! My head's bursting!' he cried. He was a wild figure, about my own size but much bent, with a week's beard on his chin and a pair of big horn spectacles. "'A canadent!' he cried again. "'The servia man just report me. I'm for my bed.' I asked him what was the trouble, though indeed that was clear enough. The trouble is that I'm no sober. Last nick my doctor Merrin was wadded, and they danced till four in the byre. Me and some other chiel sit down to the drinking, and here I am. Pity that I've a looked it in the wine when it was red. I agreed with him about bed. It's easy speaking, he moaned. But I got a postcard yesterday saying that the new road surveyor would be round the day. He'll come and he'll no find me, or else he'll find me foo, and either way I'm a done man. I'll a-war back to my bed and say I'm no weel, but I doot that'll no help me, for they ken my kind of no weelness. Then I had an inspiration. Does the new surveyor know you? I asked. No him. He's just been a week at the job. He runs about in a wee motor-car, and would spear the in-oot or a whelk." "'Where's your house?' I asked, and was directed by a wavering finger to the cottage by the stream. "'Well, back to your bed,' I said, and sleep in peace. I'll take on your job for a bit and see the surveyor." He stared at me blankly. Then, as the notion dawned on his fuddled brain, his face broke into the vacant, drunkard smile. "'You're the billy!' he cried. "'It'll be easy enough managed. I finished that bing o' stains, and you needn't a chap on mare this forenoon. Just take the barry, and wail enough metal frae yon quarry doon the road to make a nither bang the morn. My name's Alexander Turnbull, and I've been seven year at this trade and twenty afore that herding on lethen water. My friends call me Ecky, and while Specky, for I wear glasses, being weak i' the sicht. Just ye speak to the severe fair and call him sir, and he'll be fell pleased. I'll be back a midday." I borrowed his spectacle and filthy old hat, stripped off coat, waistcoat, and collar, and gave him them to carry home borrowed, too, the foul stump of a clay pipe as an extra property. He indicated my simple tasks, and without more ado set off at an amble bedwards. Bed may have been his chief object, but I think there was also something left in the foot of a bottle. I prayed that he might be safe under cover before my friends arrived on the scene. Then I set to work to dress for the part. I opened the collar of my shirt. It was a vulgar blue-and-white check, such as ploughmen wear, and revealed a neck as brown as any tinker's. I rolled up my sleeves, and there was a forearm which might have been a blacksmith's, sunburned and rough with old scars. I got my boots and trouser-legs all white from the dust of the road, and hitched up my trousers, tying them with string below the knee. Then I set to work on my face. With a handful of dust I made a watermark round my neck, the place where Mr. Turnbull's Sunday ablutions might be expected to stop. I rubbed a good deal of dirt also into the sunburn of my cheeks. 
A roadman's eyes would no doubt be a little inflamed, so I contrived to get some dust in both of mine, and by dint of vigorous rubbing produced a bleary effect. The sandwiches Sir Harry had given me had gone off with my coat, but the roadman's lunch, tied up in a red handkerchief, was at my disposal. I ate with great relish several of the thick slabs of scone and cheese, and drank a little of the cold tea. In the handkerchief was a local paper, tied with string and addressed to Mr. Turnbull, obviously meant to solace his midday leisure. I did up the bundle again, and put the paper conspicuously beside it. My boots did not satisfy me, but by dint of kicking among the stones I reduced them to the granite-like surface which marks a roadman's footgear. Then I bit and scraped up my fingernails till the edges were all cracked and uneven. The men I was matched against would miss no detail. I broke one of the bootlaces and retied it in a clumsy knot, and loosened the other so that my thick grey socks bulged over the uppers. Still no sign of anything on the road. The motor I had observed half an hour ago must have gone home. My toilette complete, I took up the barrow and began my journeys to and from the quarry a hundred yards off. I remembered an old scout in Rhodesia, who had done many queer things in his day, once telling me that the secret of playing a part was to think yourself into it. You could never keep it up, he said, unless you could manage to convince yourself that you were it. So I shut off all other thoughts and switched them on the road-mending. I thought of the little white cottage as my home. I recalled the years I had spent herding on lethen water. I made my mind dwell lovingly on sleep in a box-bed, and a bottle of cheap whisky. Still nothing appeared on that long white road. Now and then a sheep wandered off the heather to stare at me. A heron flopped down to a pool in the stream and started to fish, taking no more notice of me than if I had been a milestone. On I went trundling my loads of stone, with the heavy step of the professional. Soon I grew warm, and the dust on my face changed to solid and abiding grit. I was already counting the hours till evening should put a limit to Mr. Turnbull's monotonous toil. Suddenly a crisp voice spoke from the road, and looking up I saw a little Ford two-seater and a round-faced young man in a bowler hat. "'Are you Alexander Turnbull?' he asked. "'I am the new county road surveyor. You live at Blackhopefoot, and have charge of the section from Laidlaw Byers to the Riggs? Good. A fair bit of road, Turnbull, and not badly engineered. A little soft about a mile off, and the edges want cleaning. See you look after that. Good morning. You'll know me the next time you see me.' Clearly my get-up was good enough for the dreaded surveyor. I went on with my work, and as the morning grew towards noon I was cheered by a little traffic. A baker's van breasted the hill, and sold me a bag of ginger-biscuits which I stowed in my trouser-pockets against emergencies. Then a herd passed with sheep, and disturbed me somewhat by asking loudly, "'What a become a specky?' "'In bed with a colic,' I replied and the herd passed on. Just about midday a big car stole down the hill, glided past, and drew up a hundred yards beyond. Its three occupants descended as if to stretch their legs, 
and sauntered towards me. Two of the men I had seen before from the window of the Galloway Inn, one lean, sharp, and dark, the other comfortable and smiling. The third had the look of a countryman, a vet, perhaps, or a small farmer. He was dressed in ill-cut knickerbockers, and the eye in his head was as bright and wary as a hen's. "'Morning,' said the last. "'That's a fine easy job of yours.' I had not looked up on their approach, and now, when accosted, I slowly and painfully straightened my back after the manner of roadmen, spat vigorously after the manner of the low Scot, and regarded them steadily before replying. I confronted three pairs of eyes that missed nothing. "'There's where jobs and there's better,' I said sententiously. "'I would rather hear your sitting a day on your hinderlands on the cushions. It's you and your muckle-cores that wreck my roads, and if we had the rights, you'd soon be made to mend what ye break.' The bright-eyed man was looking at the newspaper lying beside Turnbull's bundle. "'I see you get your papers in good time,' he said. I glanced at it casually. Eh, in good time, seeing that people come at last Saturday. I'm just four days late." He picked it up, glanced at the superscription, and laid it down again. One of the others had been looking at my boots, and a word in German called the speaker's attention to them. "'You've a fine taste in boots,' he said. These were never made by a country shoemaker. They were not. I said readily. They were made in London. I got them frae the gentleman that was here last year for the shooting. What was his name now?" I scratched a forgetful head. Again the sleek one spoke in German. "'Let us get on,' he said. "'This fellow is all right.' Then they asked one last question. "'Did you see anyone pass early this morning? He might be on a bicycle, or he might be on foot.' I nearly fell into the trap, and told a story of a bicycle hurrying past in the grey dawn. But I had a sense to see my danger, and pretended to consider very deeply. "'I was not up very early,' I said. "'You see, my doctor was merit last nicht, and we kept it up late. I opened the house door about seven, and there was nobody on the road then. Since I come up here there's been just the baker and the rinchel herd, besides you gentlemen.' One of them gave me a cigar, which I smelled gingerly, and stuck in Turnbull's bundle. They got into their car and were out of sight in three minutes. My heart leapt with enormous relief, but I went on wheeling my stones. It was as well, for ten minutes later the car returned, one of the occupants waving a hand to me. These gentry left nothing to chance. I finished Turnbull's bread and cheese, and pretty soon I had finished the stones. The next step was what puzzled me. I could not keep up this road-making business for long. A merciful providence had kept Mr. Turnbull indoors, but if he appeared on the scene there would be trouble. I had a notion that the cordon was still tight round the glen, and that if I walked in any direction I should meet with questioners. But get out I must. No man's nerve could stand more than a day of being spied on. I stayed at my post till about five o'clock. By that time I had resolved to go down to Turnbull's cottage at nightfall and take my chance of getting over the hills in the darkness. 
but suddenly a new car came up the road and slowed down a yard or two from me. A fresh wind had risen, and the occupant wanted to light a cigarette. It was a touring car, with a tonneau full of an assortment of baggage. One man sat in it, and by an amazing chance I knew him. His name was Marmaduke Jopley, and he was an offence to creation. He was a sort of blood stockbroker who did his business by toadying eldest sons and rich young peers and foolish old ladies. Marmy was a familiar figure, I understood, at balls and polo weeks and country houses. He was an adroit scandal-monger, and would crawl a mile on his belly to anything that had a title or a million. I had a business introduction to his firm when I came to London, and he was good enough to ask me to dinner at his club. There he showed off at a great rate, and pattered about his duchess till the snobbery of the creature turned me sick. I asked a man afterwards why nobody kicked him, and was told that an Englishman reverenced the weaker sex. Anyhow, there he was now, nattily dressed in a fine new car, obviously on his way to visit some of his fine friends. A sudden daftness took me, and in a second I had jumped into the tonneau and had him by the shoulder. "'Hello, Jopley,' I sang out. "'Well met, my lad.' He got a horrible fright. His chin dropped as he stared at me. "'Who the devil are you?' he gasped. "'My name's Hanny,' I said, "'from Rhodesia. You remember?' "'Good God! The murderer!' he choked. "'Just so.' and there'll be a second murder, my dear, if you don't do as I tell you. Give me that coat of yours—that cap, too." He did as he was bid, for he was blind with terror. Over my dirty trousers and vulgar shirt I put on his smart driving-coat, which buttoned high up to the top, and thereby hid the deficiencies of my collar. I stuck the cap on my head and added his gloves to my get-up. The dusty roadman in a minute was transformed into one of the neatest motorists in Scotland. On Mr. Jopley's head I clapped Turnbull's unspeakable hat, and told him to keep it there. Then with some difficulty I turned the car. My plan was to go back the road he had come, for the watchers, having seen it before, would probably let it pass unremarked, and Marmy's figure was in no way like mine. "'Now, my child,' I said, "'sit quite still and be a good boy. I mean you no harm. I'm only borrowing your car for an hour or two. But if you play me any tricks, and above all if you open your mouth, as sure as there's a god above me I'll wring your neck. Savvy?' I enjoyed that evening's ride. We ran eight miles down the valley through a village or two, and I could not help noticing several strange-looking folk lounging by the roadside. These were the watchers who would have had much to say to me if I had come in other garb or company. As it was, they looked incuriously on. One touched his cap in salute, and I responded graciously. As the dark fell I turned up a side-glen which, as I remembered from the map, led into an unfrequented corner of the hills. Soon the villages were left behind, then the farms, and then even the wayside cottages. Presently we came to a lonely moor, where the night was blackening the sunset gleam in the bog-pools. 
Here we stopped, and I obligingly reversed the car and restored to Mr. Jopley his belongings. "'A thousand thanks,' I said. "'There's more use in you than I thought. Now be off and find the police.' As I sat on the hillside, watching the twilight dwindle, I reflected on the various kinds of crime I had now sampled. Contrary to general belief, I was not a murderer, but I had become an unholy liar, a shameless impostor, and a highwayman with a marked taste for expensive motor-cars. End of chapter 5— Chapter 6 of The Thirty-Nine Steps by John Buchan This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Thirty-Nine Steps by John Buchan Read by Adrian Pretzelis Chapter Six, The Adventure of the Bald Archaeologist I spent the night on a shelf of the hillside, in the lee of a boulder where the heather grew long and soft. It was a cold business, for I had neither coat nor waistcoat. Those were in Mr. Turnbull's keep, as was Scudder's little book, my watch, and worst of all, my pipe and tobacco-pouch. Only my money accompanied me in my belt, and half a pound of ginger-biscuits in my trousers-pocket. I supped off half those biscuits, and by worming myself deep into the heather got some kind of warmth. My spirits had risen, and I was beginning to enjoy this crazy game of hide-and-seek. So far I had been miraculously lucky. The milkman, the literary innkeeper, Sir Harry, the roadman, and the idiotic Marmy were all pieces of undeserved good fortune. Somehow the first success gave me a feeling that I should pull through. My chief trouble was that I was desperately hungry. When a Jew shoots himself in the city and there is an inquest, the newspapers usually report that the deceased was well-nourished. I remember thinking that they would not call me well-nourished if I broke my neck in a bog-hole. I lay and tortured myself, for the ginger-biscuits merely emphasized the aching void, with the memory of all the good food I had thought so little of in London. There were Paddock's crisp sausages and fragrant shavings of bacon, and shapely poached eggs. How often I had turned up my nose at them! There were the cutlets they did at the club, and a particular ham that stood on the cold table for which my soul lusted. My thoughts hovered over all the variety of mortal edible, and finally settled on a porterhouse steak and a quart of bitter with a Welsh rarebit to follow. In longing hopelessly for these dainties I fell asleep. I woke very cold and stiff about an hour after dawn. It took me a little while to remember where I was, for I had been very weary and had slept heavily. I saw first the pale blue sky through a net of heather, then a big shoulder of hill, and then my own boots placed neatly in a blackberry bush. I raised myself on my arms and looked down into the valley, and that one look set me lacing up my boots in mad haste. For there were men below not more than a quarter of a mile off, spaced out on the hillside like a fan, and beating the heather. 
Marmy had not been slow in looking for his revenge. I crawled out of my shelf into the cover of a boulder, and from it gained a shallow trench which slanted up the mountain face. This led me presently into the narrow gully of a burn, by which way I scrambled to the top of the ridge. From there I looked back and saw that I was still undiscovered. My pursuers were patiently quartering the hillside and moving upwards. Keeping behind the skyline, I ran for maybe half a mile till I judged I was above the uppermost end of the glen. Then I showed myself, and was instantly noted by one of the flankers who passed the word to the others. I heard cries coming up from below, and saw that the line of search had changed its direction. I pretended to retreat over the skyline, but instead went back the way I had come and in twenty minutes was behind the ridge overlooking my sleeping-place. From that viewpoint I had the satisfaction of seeing the pursuit streaming up the hill at the top of the glen on a hopelessly false scent. I had before me a choice of routes, and I chose a ridge which made an angle with the one I was on, and so would soon put a deep glen between me and my enemies. The exercise had warmed my blood, and I was beginning to enjoy myself amazingly. As I went I breakfasted on the dusty remnants of the ginger biscuits. I knew very little about the country, and I hadn't a notion what I was going to do. I trusted to the strength of my legs, but I was well aware that those behind me would be familiar with the lie of the land, and that my ignorance would be a heavy handicap. I saw in front of me a sea of hills rising very high towards the south but northwards breaking down into broad ridges which separated wide and shallow dales. The ridge I had chosen seemed to sink after a mile or two to a moor which lay like a pocket in the uplands. That seemed as good a direction to take as any other. My stratagem had given me a fair start—call it twenty minutes—and I had the width of a glen behind me before I saw the first heads of the pursuers. The police had evidently called in local herds or gamekeepers. They hallooed at the sight of me, and I waved my hand. Two dived into the glen and began to climb my ridge, while the others kept their own side of the hill. I felt as if I were taking part in a schoolboy game of hare and hounds, but very soon it became to seem less of a game. These fellows behind were hefty men on their native heath. Looking back I saw that only three were following direct, and I guessed that the others had fetched a circuit to cut me off. My lack of local knowledge might very well be my undoing, and I resolved to get out of this tangle of glens to the pocket of moor I had seen from the tops. I must so increase my distance as to get clear away from them, and I believed I could do this if I could find the right ground for it. If there had been cover, I would have tried a bit of stalking, but on these bare slopes you could see a fly a mile off. My hope must be in the length of my legs and the soundness of my wind, but I needed easier ground for that, for I was not bred a mountaineer. How I longed for a good Africana pony! I put on a great spurt and got off my ridge and down into the moor before any figures appeared on the skyline behind me. I crossed a burn and came out on a high road which made a pass between two glens. All in front of me was a big field of heather, sloping up to a crest which was crowned with an odd feather of trees. 
In the dyke by the roadside was a gate from which a grass-grown track led over the first wave of the moor. I jumped the dyke and followed it, and after a few hundred yards, as soon as it was out of sight of the highway, the grass stopped, and it became a very respectable road, which was evidently kept with some care. Clearly it ran to a house, and I began to think of doing the same. Hitherto my luck had held, and it might be that my best chance would be found in this remote dwelling. Anyhow there were trees there, and that meant cover. I did not follow the road, but the burnside which flanked it on the right, where the bracken grew deep, and the high banks made a tolerable screen. It was well I did so, for no sooner had I gained the hollow than, looking back, I saw the pursuit topping the ridge from which I had descended. After that I did not look back. I had no time. I ran up the burnside, crawling over the open places, and for a large part wading in the shallow stream. I found a deserted cottage with a row of phantom peat-stacks and an overgrown garden. Then I was among young hay, and very soon had come to the edge of a plantation of wind-blown firs. From there I saw the chimneys of the house smoking a few hundred yards to my left. I forsook the burnside, crossed another dyke, and almost before I knew was on a rough lawn. A glance back told me that I was well out of sight of the pursuit, which had not yet passed the first lift of the moor. The lawn was a very rough place, cut with a scythe instead of a mower, and planted with beds of scrubby rhododendrons. A brace of black game, which are not usually garden birds, rose at my approach. The house before me was the ordinary moorland farm, with a more pretentious whitewashed wing added. Attached to this wing was a glass veranda, and through the glass I saw the face of an elderly gentleman meekly watching me. I stalked over the border of coarse hill gravel and entered the veranda door. Within was a pleasant room, glass on one side, and on the other a mass of books. More books showed in an inner room. On the floor, instead of tables, stood cases such as you see in a museum, filled with coins and queer stone implements. There was a knee-hole desk in the middle, and seated at it, with some papers and open volumes before him, was the benevolent old gentleman. His face was round and shiny, like Mr. Pickwick's, big glasses were stuck on the end of his nose, and the top of his head was as bright and bare as a glass bottle. He never moved when I entered, but raised his placid eyebrows and waited on me to speak. It was not an easy job, with about five minutes to spare, to tell a stranger who I was and what I wanted, and to win his aid. I did not attempt it. There was something about the eye of the man before me, something so keen and knowledgeable, that I could not find a word. I simply stared at him and stuttered. "'You seem in a hurry, my friend.' he said slowly. I nodded towards the window. It gave a prospect across the moor through a gap in the plantation, and revealed certain figures half a mile off, straggling through the heather. "'Ah, I see,' he said, and took up a pair of field-glasses, through which he patiently scrutinised the figures. "'A fugitive from justice, eh? Well, we'll go into the matter at our leisure.' Meantime I object to my privacy being broken in upon by the clumsy rural policeman. Go into my study and you will see two doors facing you. 
Take the one to the left and close it behind you. You will be perfectly safe." And this extraordinary man took up his pen again. I did as I was bid, and found myself in a little dark chamber which smelled of chemicals, and was lit only by a tiny window high up in the wall. The door had swung behind me with a click like the door of a safe. Once again I had found an unexpected sanctuary. All the same I was not comfortable. There was something about the old gentleman which puzzled and rather terrified me. He had been too easy and ready, almost as if he had expected me, and his eyes had been horribly intelligent. No sound came to me in that dark place. For all I knew the police might be searching the house, and if they did they would want to know what was behind this door. I tried to possess my soul in patience, and to forget how hungry I was. Then I took a more cheerful view. The old gentleman could scarcely refuse me a meal, and I fell to reconstructing my breakfast. Bacon and eggs would content me, but I wanted the better part of a flitch of bacon and half a hundred eggs. And then, while my mouth was watering in anticipation, there was a click, and the door stood open. I emerged into the sunlight to find the master of the house sitting in a deep armchair in the room he called his study, and regarding me with curious eyes. "'Have they gone?' I asked. "'They have gone. I convinced them that you had crossed the hill. I do not choose that the police should come between me and one who I am delighted to honour. This is a lucky morning for you, Mr. Richard Hannay." As he spoke his eyelids seemed to tremble, and to fall a little over his keen grey eyes. In a flash the phrase of Scudder's came back to me when he described the man he most dreaded in the world. He had said that he could hood his eyes like a hawk. Then I saw that I had walked straight into the enemy's headquarters. My first impulse was to throttle the old ruffian and make for the open air. He seemed to anticipate my intention, for he smiled gently and nodded to the door behind me. I turned and saw two men-servants, who had me covered with pistols. He knew my name, and he had never seen me before, and as the reflection darted across my mind I saw a slender chance. "'I don't know what you mean,' I said roughly. And who are you calling Richard Hanny? My name's Ainsley." "'So,' he said, smiling, "'but of course you have others. We won't quarrel about a name.' I was pulling myself together now, and I reflected that my garb, lacking coat and waistcoat and collar, would at any rate not betray me. I put on my surliest face, and shrugged my shoulders. "'I suppose you're going to give me up, after all, and I call it a damn dirty trick. My God, I wish I had never seen that cursed motor-car. Here's the money and be damned to you!" And I flung four sovereigns on the table. He opened his eyes a little. "'Oh, no, I shall not give you up. My friends and I will have a little private settlement with you, that is all. You know a little too much, Mr. Hannay. You are a clever actor, but not quite clever enough.' He spoke with assurance but I could see the dawning of a doubt in his mind. "'Oh, for God's sake, stop jawing!' I cried. "'Everything's against me. I haven't had a bit of luck since I came ashore at Leith. 
But what's the harm in a poor devil with an empty stomach picking up some money he finds in a bust-up motor-car? That's all I done, and for that I've been chivied for two days by these blasted bobbies over these blasted hills. I tell you, I'm fair sick of it. You can do what you like, old boy. Ned Ainsley's got no fight left in him." I could see that the doubt was gaining. "'Will you oblige me with the story of your recent doings?' he asked. "'I can't, Governor,' I said, in a real beggar's whine. "'I've not had a bite to eat for two days. Give me a mouthful of food, and then you'll hear God's truth.' I must have showed my hunger in my face, for he signalled to one of the men in the doorway. A bit of cold pie was bought, and a glass of beer, and I wolfed them down like a pig, or rather like Ned Ainsley, for I was keeping up my character. In the middle of my meal he spoke suddenly to me in German, but I turned on him a face as blank as a stone wall. Then I told him my story, how I had come off an archangel ship at Leith a week ago, and was making my way overland to my brother at Wigton. I had run short of cash—I hinted vaguely at a spree and I was pretty well on my uppers when I had come on a hole in a hedge, and looking through had seen a big motor-car lying in a burn. I had poked about to see what was happening, and had found three sovereigns lying on the seat, and one on the floor. There was nobody there, or any sign of an owner, so I had pocketed the cash. But somehow the law had got after me. When I had tried to change a sovereign in a baker's shop, the woman had cried on the police and a little later, when I was washing my face in a burn, I had been nearly gripped, and had only got away by leaving my coat and waistcoat behind me. "'They can have the money back,' I cried, for a fat lot of good it's done me. Those perishers are all down on a poor man. Now, if it had been you, Governor, that had found the quids, nobody would have troubled you.' "'You're a good liar, Hannay,' he said. I flew into a rage. "'Stop fooling, damn you! I tell you my name's Ainsley, and I never heard of any one called Hanny in my born days. I'd sooner have the police than you with your Hannays and your monkey-faced pistol tricks. No, Governor, I, I don't mean that. I'm much obliged for you for the grub. I'll thank you to let me go now the coast's clear.' It was obvious that he was badly puzzled. You see, he had never seen me, and my appearance must have altered considerably from my photographs if he had got one of them. I was pretty smart and well-dressed in London, and now I was a regular tramp. "'I do not propose to let you go. If you are what you say you are, you will soon have a chance of clearing yourself. If you are what I believe you are, I do not think you will see the light much longer.' He rang a bell, and a third servant appeared from the veranda. "'I want the Lancaster in five minutes.' he said. There will be three to luncheon. Then he looked steadily at me, and that was the hardest ordeal of all. There was something weird and devilish in those eyes, cold, malignant, unearthly, and most hellishly clever. They fascinated me like the bright eyes of a snake. I had a strong impulse to throw myself on his mercy and offer to join his side and if you consider the way I felt about the whole thing, you will see that that impulse must have been purely physical, the weakness of a brain mesmerized and mastered by a stronger spirit. But I managed to stick it out, and even to grin. "'You'll know me next time, Governor,' I said. "'Carl,' 
he said in German to one of the men in the doorway. "'You will put this fellow in the storeroom until I return, and you will be answerable to me for his keeping.' I was marched out of the room with a pistol at each ear. The storeroom was a damp chamber in what had been the old farmhouse. There was no carpet on the uneven floor, and nothing to sit down on but a school form. It was black as pitch, for the windows were heavily shuttered. I made out by groping that the walls were lined with boxes and barrels and sacks of some heavy stuff. The whole place smelled of mould and disuse. My jailers turned the key in the door, and I could hear them shifting their feet as they stood on guard outside. I sat down in the chilly darkness in a very miserable frame of mind. The old boy had gone off in a motor to collect the two ruffians who had interviewed me yesterday. Now they had seen me as the roadman, and they would remember me, for I was in the same rig. What was a roadman doing twenty miles from his beat, pursued by the police? A question or two would put them on the track. Probably they had seen Mr. Turnbull, probably Marmy too. Most likely they could link me up with Sir Harry, and then the whole thing would be crystal clear. What chance had I in this moorland house with three desperadoes and their armed servants? I began to think wistfully of the police, now plodding over the hills after my wraith. They at any rate were fellow countrymen and honest men, and their tender mercies would be kinder than these ghoulish aliens. But they wouldn't have listened to me. That old devil with the eyelids had not taken long to get rid of them. I thought he probably had some kind of graft with the constabulary. Most likely he had letters from cabinet ministers saying he was to be given every facility for plotting against Britain. That was the sort of owlish way we run our politics in the old country. The three would be back for lunch, so I hadn't got more than a couple of hours to wait. It was simply waiting on destruction for I could see no way out of this mess. I wished that I had Scudder's courage, for I am free to confess I didn't feel any great fortitude. The only thing that kept me going was that I was pretty furious. It made me boil with rage to think of those three spies getting the pull on me like this. I hoped that at any rate I might be able to twist one of their necks before they downed me. The more I thought of it the angrier I grew and I had to get up and move about the room. I tried the shutters, but they were the kind that lock with a key, and I couldn't move them. From the outside came the faint clucking of hens in the warm sun. Then I groped among the sacks and boxes. I couldn't open the latter, and the sacks seemed to be full of things like dog-biscuits that smelled of cinnamon. But as I circumnavigated the room I found a handle in the wall which seemed worth investigating. It was the door of a wall-cupboard, what they call a press in Scotland, and it was locked. I shook it, and it seemed rather flimsy. For want of something better to do I put out my strength on that door, getting some purchase on the handle by looping my braces round it. Presently the thing gave with a crash, which I thought would bring in my warders to inquire. I waited for a bit, and then started to explore the cupboard shelves. There was a multitude of queer things there. I found an odd vester or two in my trousers pocket, and struck a light. It went out in a second, but it showed me one thing. There was a little stock of electric torches on one shelf. 
I picked one up and found it was in working order. With the torch to help me I investigated further. There were bottles and cases of queer-smelling stuffs, chemicals no doubt for experiments, and there were coils of fine copper wire and yanks and yanks of a thin oiled silk. There was a box of detonators and a lot of cord for fuses. Then away at the back of a shelf I found a stout brown cardboard box, and inside it a wooden case. I managed to wrench it open, and within lay half a dozen little grey bricks, each a couple of inches square. I took one up and found that it crumbled easily in my hand. Then I smelled it and put my tongue to it. After that I sat down to think. I hadn't been a mining engineer for nothing, and I knew lentonite when I saw it. With one of these bricks I could blow the house to smithereens. I'd used the stuff in Rhodesia and knew its power. But the trouble was that my knowledge wasn't exact. I'd forgotten the proper charge and the right way of preparing it, and I wasn't sure about the timing. I had only a vague notion, too, as to its power, for though I had used it I had not handled it with my own fingers. But it was a chance, the only possible chance. It was a mighty risk, but against it was an absolute black certainty. If I used it the odds were, as I reckoned, about five to one in favour of my blowing myself into the tree-tops, but if I didn't I should be very likely to be occupying a six-foot hole in the garden by the evening. That was the way I had to look at it. The prospect was pretty dark either way, but anyhow there was a chance, both for myself and for my country. The remembrance of little Scudder decided me. It was about the beastliest moment of my life, for I am no good at these cold-blooded resolutions. Still, I managed to rake up the pluck to set my teeth and choke back the horrid doubts that flooded in on me. I simply shut off my mind and pretended I was doing an experiment as simple as Guy Fawkes' fireworks. I got a detonator and fixed it to a couple of feet of fuse. Then I took a quarter of a lentonite brick and buried it near the door below one of the sacks in a crack of the floor, fixing the detonator in it. For all I knew half of these boxes might be dynamite. If the cupboard held such deadly explosives, why not the boxes? In that case there would be a glorious skyward journey for me and the German servants, and about an acre of the surrounding country. There was also the risk that the detonation might set off the other bricks in the cupboard, for I had forgotten most that I knew about lentonite but it didn't do to begin thinking about the possibilities. The odds were horrible, but I had to take them. I ensconced myself just below the sill of the window and lit the fuse. Then I waited for a moment or two. There was dead silence. Only a shuffle of heavy boots in the passage, and the peaceful cluck of hens from the warm out-of-doors. I commended my soul to my Maker, and wondered where I would be in five seconds. A great wave of heat seemed to surge upwards from the floor and hang for a blistering instant in the air. Then the wall opposite me flashed into a golden yellow and dissolved with a rending thunder that hammered my brain into a pulp. Something dropped on me, catching the point of my left shoulder, and then I became unconscious. My stupor can scarcely have lasted beyond a few seconds. I felt myself being choked by thick yellow fumes, 
and struggled out of the debris to my feet. Somewhere behind me I felt fresh air. The jams of the window had fallen, and through the ragged rent the smoke was pouring out to the summer noon. I stepped over the broken lintel and found myself standing in a yard in a dense and acrid fog. I felt very sick and ill, but I could move my limbs, and I staggered blindly forward away from the house. A small mill-laid ran in a wooden aqueduct at the other side of the yard, and into this I fell. The cool water revives me, and I had just enough wits left to think of escape. I squirmed up the lade among the slippery green slime till I reached the mill-wheel. Then I reeled through the axle-hole into the old mill and tumbled onto a bed of chaff. A nail caught the seat of my trousers, and I left a wisp of heather mixture behind me. The mill had been long out of use. The ladders were rotten with age, and in the loft the rats had gnawed great holes in the floor. Nausea shook me, and a wheel in my head kept turning while my left shoulder and arm seemed to be stricken with the palsy. I looked out of the window and saw a fog still hanging over the house, and smoke escaping from an upper window. Please God I had set the place on fire, for I could hear the confused cries coming from the other side. But I had no time to linger, since this mill was obviously a bad hiding-place. Anyone looking for me would naturally follow the lade and I made certain the search would begin as soon as they found that my body was not in the storeroom. From another window I saw that on the far side of the mill stood an old stone dovecot. If I could get there without leaving tracks I might find a hiding-place, for I argued that my enemies, if they thought I could move, would conclude that I had made for open country, and would go seeking me on the moor. I crawled down the broken ladder scattering chaff behind me to cover my footsteps. I did the same on the mill-floor, and on the threshold where the door hung on broken hinges. Peeping out I saw that between me and the dovecot was a piece of bare cobbled ground, where no footmarks would show. Also it was mercifully hid by the mill-buildings from any view from the house. I slipped across the space, got into the back of the dovecot, and prospected a way of ascent. That was one of the hardest jobs I ever took on. My shoulder and arm ached like hell, and I was so sick and giddy that I was always on the verge of falling. But I managed it somehow. By the use of outjutting stones and gaps in the masonry, and a tough ivy root, I got to the top in the end. There was a little parapet behind which I found a space to lie down. Then I proceeded to go into an old-fashioned swoon. I woke with a burning head and the sun glaring in my face. For a long time I lay motionless, for these horrible fumes seemed to have loosened my joints and dulled my brain. Sounds came to me from the house, men speaking throatily, and the throbbing of a stationary car. There was a little gap in the parapet to which I wriggled, and from which I had some sort of prospect of the yard. I saw figures come out, a servant with his head bound up, then a younger man in knickerbockers. They were looking for something, and moved towards the mill. Then one of them caught sight of the wisp of cloth on the nail, and cried out to the other. They both went back to the house, and brought two more to look at it. I saw the rotund figure of my late captor, 
and thought I made out the man with the lisp. I noticed that all had pistols. For half an hour they ransacked the mill. I could hear them kicking over the barrels and pulling up the rotten planking. Then they came outside and stood just below the dovecot, arguing fiercely. The servant with the bandage was being soundly rated. I heard them fiddling with the door of the dovecot, and for one horrid moment I thought they were coming up. Then they thought better of it and went back to the house. All that long blistering afternoon I lay baking on the rooftop. Thirst was my chief torment. My tongue was like a stick, and to make it worse I could hear the cool drip of water from the mill laid. I watched the course of the little stream as it came in from the moor, and my fancy followed it to the top of the glen where it must issue from an icy fountain fringed with cool ferns and mosses. I would have given a thousand pounds to plunge my face into that. I had a fine prospect of the whole ring of moorland. I saw the car speed away with two occupants, and a man on a hill-pony riding east. I judged they were looking for me, and I wished them joy of their quest. But I saw something else more interesting. The house stood almost on the summit of a swell of moorland which crowned a sort of plateau, and there was no higher point nearer than the big hills six miles off. The actual summit, as I have mentioned, was a biggish clump of trees, firs mostly, with a few ashes and beeches. On the dovecot I was almost on a level with the tree-tops, and could see what lay beyond. The wood was not solid, but only a ring, and inside was an oval of green turf, for all the world like a big cricket-field. I didn't take long to guess what it was. It was an aerodrome, and a secret one. The place had been most cunningly chosen, for suppose anyone were watching an airplane descending here, he would think it had gone over the hills beyond the trees. As the place was on the top of a rise in the midst of a big amphitheatre, any observer from any direction would conclude it had passed out of view behind the hill. Only a man very close at hand would realise that the aeroplane had not gone over but had descended in the midst of the wood. An observer with a telescope on one of the higher hills might have discovered the truth, but only herds went there, and herds do not carry spy-glasses. When I looked from the dovecot I could see far away a blue line which I knew was the sea, and I grew furious to think that our enemies had this secret conning-tower to rake our waterways. Then I reflected that if that aeroplane came back the chances were ten to one that I would be discovered. So through the afternoon I lay and prayed for the coming of darkness, and glad I was when the sun went down over the big western hills and the twilight haze crept over the moor. The aeroplane was late. The gloaming was far advanced when I heard the beat of wings and saw it volplaning down toward its home in the wood. Lights twinkled for a bit, and there was much coming and going from the house. Then the dark fell and silence. Thank God it was a black night. The moon was well on its last quarter, and would not rise till late. My thirst was too great to allow me to tarry. So about nine o'clock, uh, so far as I could judge, I started to descend. It wasn't easy, and halfway down I heard the back door of the house open, and saw the gleam of a lantern against the mill wall. 
For some agonizing minutes I hung by the ivy and prayed that whatever it was would not come round by the dovecot. Then the light disappeared, and I dropped as softly as I could onto the hard soil of the yard. I crawled on my belly in the lee of a stone dyke till I reached the fringe of trees which surrounded the house. If I had known how to do it I would have tried to put that aeroplane out of action, but I realized that any attempt would probably be futile. I was pretty certain that there would be some kind of defence round the house, so I went through the woods on hands and knees, feeling carefully every inch before me. It was as well for presently I came on a wire about two feet from the ground. If I had tripped over that it would doubtless have rung some bell in the house, and I would have been captured. A hundred yards further on I found another wire cunningly placed on the edge of a small stream. Beyond that lay the moor, and in five minutes I was deep in bracken and heather. Soon I was round the shoulder of the rise in the little glen from which the mill-laid flowed. Ten minutes later my face was deep in the spring, and I was soaking down pints of the blessed water. But I did not stop till I had put half a dozen miles between me and that accursed dwelling. End of chapter 6 The Adventure of the Bald Archaeologist Read by Adrian Pretzelis, a mostly bald archaeologist.